A person's a person, no matter how small, said Horton the elephant, the largest of all. Let's consider that theme in this message time. And just for some fun, I'll start with Susie and rhyme. But why, I hear you ask? Well, it should not offend. Our God is creative, so just go with it, friend. A person's a person, no matter how small. Horton pleaded to a kangaroo with the gall to claim that the voice that Horton heard clearly from the speck was a sign that Horton had nearly lost his mind or gone crazy and shouldn't be out in the jungle of Newell with the children about. But deep down in his heart, Horton concluded, a voice came from that speck. He wasn't deluded. A person's a person, no matter how small. That truth is so crucial in our hearts. Let's install a sense of each person's real worth in God's eyes so our love of the least be true, not a disguise. The first Bible text we will look at today is in 1 Corinthians 1, so turn all the way to that page in the good book and get ready to read. We'll start in verse 26 and from there proceed. Let's read together, 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Here's what I want you to hear me say today. Only God can determine the value of a person. But we try to do that all the time. It's estimated that the chemical components of a 200-pound person are worth, worth less than 20 bucks. Most of your body is water. You can get that just about free anywhere. So if you take the, all the chemical components of a human body and, and extract them, it's worth about $20. But when you think about the electrical power that we generate, all our neurons all over our body firing constantly, our heart beating, you know, 60 times a minute or, or whatever. Um, that's a lot of electrical power. It's figured that we would produce about 11,400,000 kilowatts per pound if we could harness it. We can't. But if we could, it would be that. So if you calculate that in terms of energy production, a 200-pound person is worth $342 billion a second, or about $20 trillion a year. Now, please, please, do not go out in the garage, attach electrodes to your head, and try to make money. Don't do don't do that. We haven't figured out a way to do that yet. This is not the matrix, okay? In our culture, we are constantly trying to decide what people are worth. 
not just financially, but culturally, politically, existentially. We try to take into account what people are worth in terms of entertainment value and personal fulfillment. The great driving question of this pandemic has been, what is a life worth? Some people say, nobody's job is worth somebody's life. Other people say, why should my family lose their source of income because your 72-year-old uncle who smokes is worried about his lungs now? Who's right? On this special day, when we see the value of our mothers, happy Mother's Day, Mom, how do you determine the value of a person? Dr. Seuss took up that question in his 1954 book, Horton Hears a Who. The book's main theme, A Person is a Person, No Matter How Small, was Dr. Seuss's response following a personal visit to Japan. In the years leading up to, the time leading up to and including World War II, Theodore Geisel, Dr. Seuss, had pretty strong anti-Japanese sentiment. He even approved of the internment camps. But after hearing about the destruction in Hiroshima and Nagasaki from our atomic weapon, and going to Japan and meeting the people and seeing them, he had a change of heart. He, his, his heart changed. And he came back and he wrote this book, Horton Hears a Who, dedicated it to a Japanese friend of his. He used it as an allegory to teach children that people have intrinsic value. And as Christians, we're absolutely on the same page with Dr. Seuss. People matter. Ultimately, people matter to God. So what does that mean for us? A couple things. Here's the first one. You matter to God. You do. You matter to God. Emma Goldman was a civil rights activist and women's rights advocate, and she said this, the ultimate end of all revolutionary social change is to establish the sanctity of human life, the dignity of man, and by that she means mankind, the right of every human being to liberty and well-being. <laughs> May the revolutionary social change that comes on the back end of this pandemic establish those things. That's something I'm praying for. In 1 Corinthians 1, there's a contrast between what the world values and what God values as well as a connection between being called and being chosen. Here, here's what I want you to see this. God picked you. God picked you because he wants, you to do, he wants to do something in your life that will shame the world and all its so-called wisdom. So what is that? Well, he wants your life to be a testimony to the righteousness and holiness and redemption of Jesus, and not to our own socioeconomic, human intellectual elitism, or political power, or economic status. 
sadly, our culture values those things more than anything. If nothing else, this pandemic has taught us that we probably had our values in the wrong spot. And, and this lesson has been and continues to be as big as Horton was to the Who's. Now, kids, have you found Horton yet? Look around. Do you see him? Where is he? All right, you, you look. Tell your mom and dad, okay, Do you, or your grandpa and grandma, if you're there watching with them. You see him? Okay, if you don't, keep looking. Well, you'll, you'll have another chance here. See, what Paul is saying here is that what matters to God um, is what goes on in our lives. <laughs> that God really does care. You matter to God. The, the family or culture that you were born into, it doesn't mean anything compared to the work of God in you to bring salvation to the whole world. What matters is how much we surrender our lives in humility and seek the glory of God and not our own glory. Paul is telling us here that none of us really has any claim to glory on our own, and the things that the world values so much in God's eyes really don't matter that much. Every one of you matters to God. We all have worth because of His transforming power in us. You matter to God. And for the church, that's been true for two millennia. You, you need to know this. Christianity was a revolution in its culture. It absolutely was. Christianity was a complete revolution. There's a letter that we have found. It dates from 1 BC, so just a few years before Jesus was born, okay? Or, or, or right about the time, excuse me, a few years after Jesus was born. Um, it records the wishes of a husband to his wife regarding the upcoming birth of their child. She's pregnant, <laughs> and her husband writes her a letter, and this is what it says. If, good luck to you, <laughs> he's wishing her luck in the birth, you bear offspring. If it is a male, let it live. If it is a female, expose it. Now, you need to know what he means. The phrase expose it refers to the first century Roman practice of exposure. If a family had a baby that they didn't want, they would take it out in the woods and leave it there. True story. Happened all the time. They would take it to the dump and leave it there for the wild animals to get. And they were left to die unless someone came along and picked them up to care for them and raise them. Can you think of a modern analogy to that? Now, why would they do that? It's because they did not believe in the intrinsic value of human life. They didn't know their ancient Romans did not hold the same conviction. The ancient Greeks did it too. They didn't hold the same conviction that we have. <laughs> that a life has value because they're made in the image of God. In the first century, Christians began going out into the woods. They began going out to the city dump and they would find these babies and they would bring them back into their homes and they would raise them as their own children. <laughs> People were like, how did the church grow so fast in the first century? Simple. They went out and found the people nobody else wanted. And they brought them into their own life because they believed that those kids had value. A person is a person no matter how small. 
The text says that God uses the small to shame the large. That God can accomplish his will and work through the smallest of people. Paul says that in in this text that God nullified. Did you see that word in verse 25? Look at that again. Or verse 28, excuse me. He said God God chose the, the lowly things and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. That word nullify there means to render ineffective. Well, when did God do that? On the cross. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." A person is a person, no matter how small, said Horton the elephant, the largest of all. Let's return to this theme and really think it through. If we matter to God, then each of us does too. Horton saw value in those who's on the speck. Though no one could hear them, Horton said, wait a sec. He talked to the mayor of Whoville and learned that there were hundreds of who's that were quite concerned that Horton would keep them from the trials of this world, guard and protect them while their speck floated and twirled. A person's a person, no matter how small. If one matters to God, then so must they all. For proof of this fact, please turn to Matthew 18. It's the first of four Gospels, and this text is keen. I'd like you to turn there and be ready to read. These words from the Bible will speak right to our need. We must love all who are small, so listen and heed. I want you to have someone in your house, maybe one of the kids there, read Matthew 18, 1 through 6. Would you read that now? At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. What we learn from this passage in Matthew is that Jesus radically rewrites our understanding of what God values and of who God values. The second part of understanding that people matter to God is this. Everyone matters to God. If you matter to God, you're part of everyone. Everyone matters to God. Look back at Matthew 18, verse 2. Look at this. Jesus calls a child to himself. Did you see that? He called a little child, little kid. I got some little kids. (laughs) He called a little child to him. 
and place the child among them. Now, this is huge. In first century culture, children were loved. First century Jewish culture. Children were loved. They were valued. They were thought of as a blessing from God. They were wanted. But they had no social status. A kid in the first century was never the center of attention. Some of you probably grew up that way. You know, you speak when you're spoken to. Children are to be seen and not heard. <laughs> Some of you, probably that's the way you were raised, wasn't it? <laughs> you, if you want, in the chat, you can like do, like raise your hand. Like, that was me. I, I did that. Jesus calls a child. He makes them the center of attention. Let me tell you something. Jesus is still doing that. Jesus is still calling the weak, the unimportant, the marginalized, the least of these to himself. In the story, Horton hears a who. Horton makes the who's who would have been ignored by everybody else the focus of attention, doesn't he? Now, kids, have you found Horton yet? Did you see him? Did you find him? Ah, you found him? Yeah. He's right there on the piano, isn't he? Good job. You found him. Good way to go. Horton believed that everybody on that speck mattered. Look at what Jesus says in verse 2. He says, you must change before you can enter the kingdom of heaven. Change there means a complete reorientation of your life, a 180. You're turning around going the other way. Just like a child's priorities are derivative of, from their parents, our priorities get placed under the authority and importance of God's priorities. Jesus is saying here, there's no entrance into God's kingdom unless you humble yourself and become like the small and the weak and the marginalized. In the original text, the word never in verse 3, you'll never enter the kingdom, is in the emphatic form. Jesus is serious about this. <laughs> He says that you must humble yourself like a child to enter the kingdom. He's constantly telling us to humble ourselves because when he does it, you won't like it. Now, li listen, <laughs> there are some prayers that you can pray that are really dumb. And one of those is, God, please humble me. Don't ever Ask God to humble you. There's two reasons for that. Number one, you won't like it. <laughs> and number two, he's already told you to do it yourself. Over and over and over again, the Bible says, humble yourself before the Lord. Matthew 23, 12 says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. As we noted earlier in Philippians 2.8, Jesus himself is the ultimate model of this. Jesus did it. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And in this command of Jesus, we see that the kingdom, in the kingdom of God, the small, the weak, the marginalized become great. They become important. And therefore, to welcome the small and the weak and the marginalized, is to welcome Jesus himself. God doesn't see rank the way we do. 
To God, the greatest people are the ones who are the most humble, the most self-sacrificing. Listen, no matter what position in life you have inherited or earned or clawed your way into, as a disciple of Jesus, because everyone matters to God, you are called to be humble. The deep teaching of this text is that you can't really even call yourself a disciple of Jesus until you forsake all pretending and pretension and come to Jesus simply and humbly. Everyone matters to God, and therefore we should all be humble. Because everyone matters to God, Jesus calls us to assign value the way He does. In this pandemic, we haven't been able to go to the movies or watch sports on TV. And the people that we have tended to place extra value on, our celebrities and movie stars and athletes, have kind of faded away. And the ordinary, everyday, the at-risk population have been the, become the center of attention, haven't they? Maybe God is using this as a disciplinary matter to rewrite our values, to help us see that everyone matters to God. Some of you may have seen a photo that went viral on the internet a few years ago. It's a picture of a six-year-old little boy named Boaz Reichstad. You see him there? See how happy he is? He's holding a sign. The sign is kind of a parody of the Occupy Wall Street signs that were popular about a decade ago. It says this, I may not be perfect, but I'm happy. I bear God's handiwork, or I am God's handiwork and I bear his image. I'm blessed. Now, the last line says, I am the 10% of children born with Down syndrome who survived Roe v. Wade. Jesus says that we must become like that little boy. Because everybody matters to God. Everyone. Everyone. Whether they've been born yet or not. Now some of you are about to get frustrated with me. You think I'm going to quit preaching and start meddling. You think I'm going to get too political. I'm going to talk about abortion for a second. Now tomorrow night, or tomorrow afternoon from 12 to 2, or tomorrow night from 5 to 7, you can swing by door number 1 under the awning, pull through, get your baby bottle to help raise money for Indiana, Indianapolis, Life Centers of Indianapolis. Um, I would encourage you to do that. Um, this is a, a, something that Chapel Rock has done for a long time to support that valuable ministry in our community. Um, some of you think I'm getting political here. I, I take no joy in telling you you're wrong. This is not a political issue. If you believe it's a political issue, you have bought into a lie from our culture. You've been deceived by the brokenness of our world. This is not a political issue. This is not a philosophical issue. When does life begin? The philosophers debate that. It's really not even a moral or a theological issue. <laughs> It's an exegetical issue. Now, the word exegesis, for those who don't know, is a Greek word. It means to lift out. 
And, and exegesis is the, the practice of lifting the, the right meaning out of the text. This is not a political issue. This is not a philosophical issue. This is not even a moral or a theological issue. This is an exegetical issue, and I can prove it. God believes that a fetus is a person. God believes that a life in the womb is a person, and I can prove it exegetically in the law of Moses. Because in the law, in Exodus 21, verse 22, in a law regarding negligent miscarriage, negligent homicide, we read this. Look at this with me. This is from the Holman Christian Standard Bible, not my normal translation, but I think they did the best job translating the Hebrew. It says, when men get in a fight and hit a pregnant woman so that her children are born prematurely, but there's no injury, the one who hit her must be fined as the woman's husband uh, demands from him, and he must pay according to judicial assessment. In this passage, the word, the Hebrew word for child is used there. The, the Hebrew word for, the normal Hebrew word for a born child is yeled. Y-E-L-E-D, yeled. That is the word used to refer to the unborn baby, child. The same word that's used to talk about a born child. It doesn't use the word nephel, which is the word for living being, <laughs> or excuse me, the word for an untimely birth or abortion. It doesn't use the word for golem, which is the word for embryo that's used in Psalm 139 that has a, a little bit different um, purpose in using that word. And if you want to get some more information on that, check out my um, uh, the Cutting Room Floor series that you'll see later this week. God says that this unborn child in the womb is a person. It's not a political issue. It's not a philosophical issue. It's not even a moral or theological issue. It's an exegetical issue. It's what the text says. God believes that's a person. That's enough for me. I'm not pro-life because of my politics. I'm not pro-life because of my philosophy. I'm not pro-life because of my theology. I'm pro-life because I believe in the cross. Because I believe in what Scripture teaches. Do you see the continuity between Jesus holding up a little child as a model of how to come into the kingdom and the value God places on the unborn? Do you see the connection between Jesus saying that all life has intrinsic value and the Great Commission mandate to make sure that every tribe and language and people and nation can hear the good news about Jesus? Do you see how they're connected? A person is a person no matter how small, and that's true if they are the unborn, and it's true if their skin is a different color than you, or they come from a different culture than you. <laughs> you matter, and you're part of everyone, and everybody matters. Every life has value. Do not let yourself be divided by the world that would shove you into opposing camps to choose between the economy and people's lives. That's a false dichotomy, church. You don't have to make that choice. Every life has value. The people who are worried about going to the hospital have value. The people who are, don't know if they're going to have food to eat next week because they're not working have value. The worth of a person is not determined by their size, 
or their rank or their wealth or their fame or the color of their skin or the country of their origin or their perceived usefulness to a society. The value of a person is determined by one thing and one thing only, the cross of Jesus Christ. It is in the cross that we see the inestimable value that God places on every single human life because that's where Jesus died for them. Did you hear the big idea today is that only God can determine the value of a person and he did it on the cross. Do you know how much Jesus values you this much? When he stretched out his arms and he died for you. Have you accepted that? Have you acknowledged Jesus as Savior and Lord? We're living in a time of unprecedented change. I don't know what the future holds, except for those who are in Christ, except for those who've made a decision to follow Jesus. And if you've never done that, what are you waiting for? He loves you so much, he died for you. He placed the value of your life above his own. What are you going to do with that? I'll tell you what you should do. Acknowledge him as Savior and Lord. Maybe you want to do that in the chat. Maybe you want to type, I believe that Jesus is my Savior. And maybe you're saying that, you're acknowledging that for the very first time. Repent of your sins. Be baptized. I I know we have a social distancing mandate. We We can still do that. Churches are essential businesses. That's part of what we do. I'd say it's one of the main things we do. If you're ready to take that step, you can type that in the chat. You can email info at chapelrock.org. We'll be in touch with you about the procedures to do that. We've done three of those during this time. Maybe this is your moment. We want to be there with you in that time. A person is a person, no matter how small. And because God loved us so much, he died on the cross in our place for our sins. Jesus humbled himself and became a servant. Maybe that's what you need to do this week, to humble yourself to serve the small and the weak and the marginalized. That's how we're going to bring wholeness to our community. You know, every week we end our services by saying a benediction. And I, I, maybe, you know, when people are here and they're new, some of you are going, that's kind of weird. <laughs> Is this a cult? No, it's not. It's just a reminder as we leave about what we're about here at Chapel Rock. And here we want people to become whole. And whether they're the unborn or people from another country or people walking out of addiction into faith in Jesus, I don't don't know. I want everyone to experience the wholeness that's only available, the the sense of God's peace, the the, the relationship with God, with with other people, with their community is, is right. And so every week we end with a benediction that that just reinforces that value. Many of you know this by heart. We're going to conclude with this today. Thank you so much for letting us come into your home. I'm grateful that that you let us do that. I'm excited about this, uh, the Gospel According to Horton series. We're going to be challenged and strengthened by this this kid's book. Um, But it's going to teach us some valuable lessons that we need to hear through this time. And then in in June, we're planning on being back together again. uh, And I'm excited about that.